Manimal won't be seen tonight, so he can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X-Files. Welcome to The Gen X-Files! I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about The, the Conversation. conversation. <laughs> oh, baby. Oh, man. I gotta say, I think this might be my top ten of my favorite movies of all time. 100%. And... Uh, this might be a little controversial, but it might be my absolute favorite um, Coppola movie. Uh, I, it's it's like 100% my favorite Coppola movie. It's hard, man. I love Apocalypse Now. I love Godfather 1 and 2. Um, I, I, I like Apocalypse Now. It feels a little messy to me, uh, you know, which I, and I love the story of the making of it. Godfather movies, they're great. I'm just not a mafia guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not really a mafia guy either, but those movies... I just remember... I, they're very good. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yes. But <laughs> this is such... It's a much smaller movie. Yeah. It really reminded me a lot of The French Connection in terms of kind of the cinema verite. And, yeah. And it really lent itself to that type of filmmaking because it was very uh, much surveillance. Yeah. I mean, it. it I, I realized this watch through that it's a character study about Harry Call, but like literally everything... From the way that the camera is set up to the music, all of it is from his point of view. Oh, yeah. My absolute favorite was when uh, he had the conversation uh, later with the lady who was trying to sleep with him. Uh, and then just to steal the tapes later, we find out. Yeah, but, she's a jerk. Yeah, but they're having that conversation. And then, like, as other people come out and they start, you know, milling about, the music just kind of picks up. And he walks away and he walks back to his work. And then as soon as – and it goes on for about 45 seconds. And then as soon as somebody asks him a question, the music goes away. And I was like, oh, that was literally him hearing jazz in his head yeah. and, like, walking away. And, like, this is more important to me right now than talking to you people. Yeah, it's deep film. There's a lot going on. Yeah. Uh, because it's such a self-contained movie, there's just so much to explore within it. Yeah. Harry Call is suffering from PTSD. Yeah. From the yeah. last job, the job yeah. he did in New York that we find yeah. out about, you yeah. know. And his obsession, we find, is because he doesn't want to be responsible for, for, for deaths again. Right, right, right. Which makes me also think that the, uh, the director or whatever, what's yeah, the guy, is yeah. that what he's called? Yeah, the director. The director yeah. uh, knew all about this, and they were yeah. manipulating him from the, from the get-go. Uh, I, well, I, don't, I wouldn't say it was the director that knew that. I... Because I think he was hired by other people. Well, not the director. Yes. Right. The, the other people that hired him uh, knew and then manipulated him into essentially. Martin yeah. Stent. Or what is it? Martin Stett. Martin Stett. Uh, oh. the, uh, yeah, yeah. Who was part of that, for sure. Well, it was Martin Stett, Cindy Williams, and uh, 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 Frederick uh, Forrest. Frederick Forrest. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Who engineered this plot. Spoiler, 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 spoiler yes, alert. But I, but I think that even beyond that, I think they were also tools like to get rid of the director. I think there was somebody even above that that was like this kind of – that's the, what I love about this movie, this whole like surveillance thing is that there's this whole weird conglomeration of like this government agency or corporate agency that we just don't know. And, and which is why the end is so important that he's like, I know they're listening, yeah. but I have to find out how. And, and it's because at the end of the day – you never know who actually is in charge. Sure, and his obsession, because he is the best yeah, in, yeah. at surveillance, at, at least uh, audio surveillance. Yeah. His obsession with not being 
recorded and not being oh, fooled and knowing where the mic yeah. is. The scene where a Garfield. Yeah. yeah, Bernie Moran is the character. Yeah, yeah. When Bernie Garfield. comes, oh god, Alan Garfield is so good at playing He's a d bag. So sleazy. You'll, you'd remember him from Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, he was the like the, the police, police chief, chief yeah, or the commander, sergeant, know. or something. Whoever yeah. was in charge, who ended yeah. up getting his comeuppance, right, from right. Bogomel at the end. <laughs> All right, what are you doing? You're a jerk. You're a fool. You're a blah, blah, blah. And he was just such a bully. So good at playing that part. Alan Garfield, n- nobody played jerk like yeah. him. Like he, and, and in this movie, he is so good because he's good at what he does. Yeah. But he's not as good oh, no, no, as no, Harry. No. And, uh, and he knows it, and he hates it. And yeah. so anytime yeah. he can, and it's always like, you know what, Harry, I, I, I did this bit, Harry, and it was a big thing, and everybody liked it, Harry, and, 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 and you know, I was a, I'm a big guy too, Harry. And it's like, how did you do this, Harry? And then when Harry wouldn't tell him the trick. Oh, my God. Then he just, that's when he's like, and then Harry got these people killed. And yeah, it's like. He had, to, he had to be the bully. Oh, my he God. He had I, to be the bully. I know so many <laughs> people yep. just yep. like that D-bag. Oh, man, oh there's God. so many Bernie Morans. That have crossed my path. Such a good movie. God, every time I see it, there's like something else I catch and something else that is in little details well, that that just are amazing. Not only is it, in my opinion, Gene Hackman's greatest performance. Yes. Because it's so unlike him and Agreed. so unlike anything oh he ever did. Yeah, that against the French Connection, Popeye yeah. Doyle. Oh, my God. It's such an internal performance. Oh, so good. And so when he does explode, when that anger comes out, an explosion, you know, we're talking. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. He's just like, it's everybody done. get out. It's just like, it's just like you know, it's in his eyes. It's all silent. in his eyes. Yeah. yeah, it's like, okay, okay, um, okay, Harry. It's, it's also one of Harrison Ford's greatest performances. Oh, my God. He's so good. And uh, the fact that, I mean, we'll get into it, the yeah. fact that he was just supposed to cameo. Oh, and that he grew that part. Yeah, and he deserved it, too. And you got John Cazale, one oh, of the greatest American actors so ever. So Watching him is a master class in acting. Yeah. And it, because it's so effortless. Yeah. His facial expressions, his reactions. He's one of the greatest reactors oh, yeah. that yeah. ever crossed the silver screen. All the movies he was in were nominated for Best Picture. I know, I know. The guy is so... No... If you're an artist or an actor or you like film or acting, never forget John Cazale. Yeah, yeah. That man has got to live on because he was just so, so talented. He was taken way too early from us. I'm getting too excited. Let's get into it. Yes, yes. We'll get into it. We'll get through all this. Uh, Take yourself back to 1974. Uh, February 8th, after record 84 days in orbit, the crew of Skylab 4 returns to Earth. And uh, pretty soon after that, Skylab itself. Would return, return to, to Earth, Earth in chunks. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that uh, the U- the U.S. or whoever owns Skylab still owes Australia uh, a fine for littering. Sure. Yeah. That sure. was such a great thing. I mean, I remember Skylab. It was so sci-fi and so... So futuristic, yeah. I remember when we actually had pride in the space program and we were excited <laughs> about launches. It's, and... it's getting back to that. I mean, well, with, I the, so. with the John Webb, the telescope, man, like that opened up a whole new avenue of people getting into NASA. Yeah, but... I'm I'm talking about like space exploration, and now it's just a bunch of well, billionaires making wiener. Well, okay, rockets to I space tourism. I don't care about billionaires wiener rockets. <laughs> I care about NASA and them actually caring about science. Good, yeah, me too. I, I just want to see them. Go- I want to get going. I want to go to Mars. I want. Oh, okay. I don't think it's going to happen in your lifetime. Jim. I'm going. It'll take thirty years. It is, is going to happen. I mean, it's definitely going to happen. Uh, uh, it's a one-way trip, baby. Probably in our grandkids' time. 
you know, I mean, that era, not our grandkids, obviously. Well, yeah, but since none of us have children. No, never having children. We, I just <laughs> skipped having kids and went right to grandkids. It was easier. <laughs> March 1st, American jazz pianist and composer Bobby Timmons dies at the age of 38 from cirrhosis after being hospitalized for a month. Drinker? Uh, yeah, yeah. Severe alcoholism. Uh, he actually took a plane to, like, Belgium, and then two days in, was so sick that they were like, you have to go back to America. Oh, wow. And send him back, and then a month later he died. Ah, it's like uh, leaving Las Vegas. Oh, it was terrible. Uh, but amazing uh, jazz composer. Uh, April 5th, Carrie, the debut novel by Stephen King, is published. Oh, baby, that is a day to live in infamy. <laughs> the greatest author ever Created his first book. Oh, it's so good. Uh, April 7th, The Conversation is released in theaters. Oh my God, the score is so good in this. And I realize that's not really the score. That's the sound effects. But like, it's so good. The sound design is so good. Sitting and watching him work. If I saw this movie when I was in like middle school or high school, I would have wanted to get into audio stuff. Oh, 100%. Like, yeah. I, I didn't see it till college. And I was kind of like, well, I missed the boat on that one because he made it look so interesting. Well, it is. Is because a it's analog, yeah, and everything yeah. is analog. And the the opening surveillance scene is just brilliant, yeah. Because yeah. it's like like you said, it was really funny. We're watching it, and you're like, oh my god, that's a that's Gene Ackman. Yeah, because no, he's, he's just just randomly yeah, in the background, yeah, like oh there, there he is, <laughs> sitting there in a see through coat. Um, but you know, all these guys, the guy with the shotgun mic, the guy yeah. with the mic in in, uh, in the presence, you know, who yeah. got caught. Yeah. And you got Kazale in the made, yeah. in the in the van, in the van yeah, making jokes, uh, being taking, a perv. Pi- taking pictures of oh, the ladies. Gosh, show me little tongue. It was ladies. so <laughs> it was so him, and it was so dead on. Um, it was so great. But it's like you know, it's what you do. You're sitting in surveillance on your ass yeah, all what day. You, yeah, you know, you got to do something. To... Well, and it's like you're just making sure it's being recorded properly because you know that Harry's going to go and remix everything. And but that's and... the thing. So you got four different recordings, right? Yeah, yeah. And. Uh, I, the, that's what I loved was he had the beep that, that synced them all up. Yeah. And then yeah. he got them all synced up. And then he's playing them all at once. Yeah. And then with the master control, he's dropping and and changing ohms. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and frequencies. So, but And that's the – from a, a writing point of view, it's brilliant that the whole movie is just based off of that, like, five-minute conversation. Yes. And, and Hence – the conversation. Yes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So the conversation is the brainchild of Francis Ford Coppola. The uh, Copes. Just a little bit about Coppola's background. Uh, he was born in Detroit, Michigan to Father Carmine Coppola, a flutist with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, and Mother Italia Coppola. Flutist or flautist? Flute, uh, flutist. Tomato, tomato. Yeah, exactly. Uh, his maternal grandfather, Francesco Panino, was a popular Italian composer, so music ran in his family from both sides. Oh, yeah. At the time of Coppola's birth, his father, in addition to being a flutist, or flautist, flautist. Uh, was an arranger and assistant orchestra director for the Ford Sunday Evening Hour, an hour-long concert music radio series sponsored by the Ford Motor Company. Nice. Coppola was born at Henry Ford Hospital, and those two connections to Henry Ford inspired the Coppolas to choose the middle name Ford for their son. Okay. I didn't know that. Neither did I. That was interesting. Sure. <laughs> it's very Italian, and his middle name is Ford. It's weird. Hey, <laughs> my name is Coppola. It's uh, Francesco Ford Coppola. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Francis is the middle of three children. His older brother was August Coppola, father of Nicolas Cage, and his younger sister is actress Talia Shire, who became famous from playing Adrian Balboa in the Rocky movies. Yeah, Nick Coppola. 
Yeah. It was funny because when Cindy Williams first came on screen, at first second, I thought it was Talia Shire. Oh, I was really? like, oh, oh, wait, that's right. She's not in this movie. She, uh, yeah. a young Cindy Williams looks a lot like uh, Zoe Deschanel. Zoe Deschanel. Yeah. yeah. She's pretty. She's cute. It was, it was, it well, was she's a great actor. Oh, she's great. And yeah. Laverne and Shirley, amazing. <sighs> we just lost her last year. Very sad. Yeah. Uh, two years after Coppola's birth, his father was named principal flutist for the NBC Symphony Orchestra, and the family moved to New York. Show business is in his blood. I also love the fact that he's he's made all these movies about New York, and he's, he's uh, from Detroit. Sure. But he <laughs> lived in New York. I know, I know, I know. It was funny. They settled in Woodside, Queens, where Coppola spent the remainder of his childhood. Having contracted polio as a boy, Coppola was bedridden for large periods of his childhood, during which he did homemade puppet theater productions. Oh, my God. There are so many stories. Of different amazing artists that were bedridden yeah. for yeah. like a year yeah. or two yeah. years with like polio or rickets yeah. or some weird disease that we don't, well, we used to not have anymore, but now <laughs> we're coming back with a fashion because of anti-vaccine. But uh, yeah. there was, there's so many, I mean, could you imagine like spending a year in bed as a child? Yeah. I just found out a good friend of mine, uh, She when she was like 10 months old, two of her lower vertebrae fused together, and she was in a body cast at the age of one for almost a year. Uh, that probably had a lot of... She had to relearn how to walk and everything. Like it was cra- Yeah, it was crazy. I spent all day in bed now. <laughs> I, I willingly put on a <laughs> yes. body cast so I don't have to go to bed. Exactly. Yeah. I fused uh, all of my vertebrae together <laughs> just, just, to just, make it more comfortable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Coppola developed an interest in theater after reading A Streetcar Named Desire at the age of 15. Stella! Uh, he created 8mm feature films, uh, edited from home movies with titles such as The Rich Millionaire and The Lost Wallet. Ooh, I wonder what those were about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like Spielberg and Lucas, they all made them movies yeah. when they were young. And me. And yeah, you. I did, too. Yeah, yeah. Although Coppola was a mediocre student, his interest in technology and engineering earned him the childhood nickname Science. Hey, Science. Hey, so Give me a lunch money. I can totally see that. I can totally hear that. Yeah. Uh, that's all I got. Give me a lunch money, Science. <laughs> Why don't you go do some science stuff and get some more money? Yeah, come on. Yeah. He trained initially for a career in music and became proficient in the tuba, eventually earning a music scholarship to the New York Military Academy. <sighs> <laughs> I, <laughs> that's all you need to say if anybody looked like a tuba player <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the tuba uh, in all Coppola attended 23 schools before he eventually graduated from Great Neck North High School weird why uh, I don't know I didn't say I don't know if he just bounced around a lot uh, maybe like because my uh, when I was a kid I mean didn't you go to like 23 oh, schools Jesus yeah well I went to the greatest school in the world for my first schooling experience and then my mother was chasing that kind of school for the rest of my academic career but in oh, Escondido yeah. yeah there weren't any you know really great right schools right. so right. I, I don't know I probably went to 10 or yeah. 12 different schools. It's crazy. This is crazy. Uh, he entered Hofstra College in 1955 as a theater arts major. There he was awarded a scholarship in playwriting. Oh. This furthered his interest in directing theater, though his father disapproved and wanted him to study engineering. <laughs> okay. Well, you're a musician, Dad. So why don't you just back <laughs> the F off? Yeah. Coppola was profoundly impressed by Sergei Eisenstein's film October, Ten Days That Shook the World, especially the quality of its editing, and decided to pursue cinema rather than theater. After earning his theater arts degree from Hofstra in 1960, Coppola enrolled in UCLA Film School. It's not an engineering school, his father said, <laughs> disdainfully. We can't even decide if you're a flutist or a flautist. Yeah. Well, actually, his father's it's not an engineering school. <laughs> Shut up, you face. God. 
<laughs> preemptively apologize to any of our Italian hey, listeners. I'm a, it's a me, and, a Mario. And, and apparently Super Mario. <laughs> <laughs> it's a me. Uh, looking for a way to earn some extra money, he found that many colleagues of film sco- from film school made money filming erotic productions known as nudie cuties or skin flicks. Ugh. Nudie cuties is one of the grossest names ever. They showed nudity without implying any sexual acts, so it was, they were just like stag yeah, films. It's just yeah. it, not even stag films because stag no, films stag were films actually, actually had, had sex. But this know. was just this was like those uh, they had those nature films where they right. had naked right. people playing volleyball. Yeah, the nudist colony. <laughs> They're nudie cuties. Yeah. Girls just sitting around on a couch, like yeah, nude. Oh. With yep. their... Hey, look, there's boobs <laughs> in a in a in a manhole sized. Oh, okay. Pubic area. All right. All right. <laughs> Dinner plate sized? Yes. Yeah. Uh, at 21, Coppola wrote the script for The Peeper, a comedy short film about a voyeur who tries to spy on a sensual photo shoot in the studio next to his apartment. Coppola found an interested producer who gave him $3,000 to shoot the film. Yeah, I like it. So he's going to peep on naked girls, huh? Ooh, I'll give you $3,000. Literally three grand in 1960 to film a nudie cutie. I can't find somebody to give me three grand to shoot something now. No. Uh, well, right. a nudie cutie actually has a possibility of making some <laughs> money, though, Adam. <laughs> That's true. Uh, he hired Playboy Bunny Marley Renfro to play the model and hired a friend to play the voyeur. Brad Renfro's mom? Yeah. I don't know. I just I made know. that up. <laughs> With the peeper finished, Coppola found that the cartoonish aspects of the film alienated potential buyers who did not find the 12-minute short exciting enough to screen in adult theaters. Look. All the comedy and the bits make me lose my boner. <laughs> so I don't want it. Uh, after much rejection, Coppola received an opportunity from Premier Pictures Company, a small production company that invested in an adult production called The Wide Open Spaces, an erotic western written and directed by Jerry Schaefer, which had been shelled for more than a year. Yeah, I didn't know what to do with it. Uh, so he received this opportunity. Both Schaefer's film and The Peeper featured Marley Renfro, so the producers paid Coppola $500 to combine the two films. How? One's a Western and one's an... I don't know, man. <laughs> After Coppola re-edited the picture, it was released in 1962 as the softcore comedy Tonight For Sure. For sure. Tonight For Sure. <laughs> Which... None of that makes sense. Nope, nope. Uh, I got, part of me wants to see it, just to see how exactly he put that together. Sure, let's see Coppola's new to cutie. Yeah. Shortly after, Roger Corman hired Coppola as an assistant. I sure did. <laughs> I know talent. He does. Corman first tasked Coppola with dubbing and re-editing the Soviet science fiction film Nebuzavyot. Nebuzavyot! Which, which Coppola turned into the sex and violence monster movie Battle Beyond the Sun, which was released in 1962. Battle Beyond the Sun. Uh, it is on Pluto TV, so if nice. you do want to watch it. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think you'd want to, <laughs> but if you do. Well, you know, the early Corwin movies are really interesting to watch because, A, all of the directors are some of the greatest directors in well, the 70s just, and 80s. Well, that's just it. And if actors, too. If you're a Coppola completist, then definitely fine. Battle Beyond the Sun. You'll have fun with Corman. Up until the 80s. That's when it... Even some of the 80s stuff is kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, once you get into the 90s, it's just all garbage. (laughs) Trust me, I worked on The Terror Within Part 2, baby. Oh, boy. Worst movie ever made. Uh, I would argue with that. You haven't seen it. 
I would still argue with that. <laughs> you see it, and then you argue. With uh, me. Impressed by Coppola's perseverance, sorry, impressed by Coppola's perseverance and dedication, Corman hired him as a dialogue director for Tower of London, starring Vincent Price in 1962, soundman for The Young Racers in 1963, and associate producer and one of many uncredited directors for The Terror, starring Boris Karloff and Jack Nicholson in 1963. Yeah, that's the Corman way. You are rewarded. It, the one thing I will have to say about the Corman Company, at least when I was there yeah. and at this time, is it was a definite meritocracy because oh yeah, yeah. I started out as an unpaid intern, and by the end of the summer, they offered me the job of craft service for pay yeah. on the next yeah. film. And then the AD was like, and then you'll be ADing, and then yeah. In, yeah. within five years, you'll be directing. Right, right. And I'm like, mm, I'm going to finish college. <laughs> this is too much of a, an actual career path for yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit too safe. No, it's... Uh, I mean, I finished college because my mom really wanted me to finish college. Sure, sure, whatever. But looking back, I probably should have. I, I, I totally agree. If I had skipped college and come straight out here, I would have gotten my career gone so much quicker. It's, that's the thing about this business is, you know, it's so different than anything else that right. the things that you normally do that make sense don't make sense. And you right. should do the opposite. And right. blah, 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 blah. And by the time you learn that, it's too late. Yep. (laughs) While on location in Ireland for the Young Racers in 1963, Corman persuaded Coppola to use the film's leftover funds to make a low-budget horror movie. Why don't you take the leftover money and just make a low-budget horror movie? He knows he's going to make money off this stuff. Why not? All right, I'll do it. Uh, Coppola wrote a brief draft in one night, incorporating elements from Hitchcock's Psycho, and the result impressed Corman enough to give the go-ahead. You got the go-ahead. On a budget of forty thousand dollars, twenty grand from Corman and twenty grand from another producer who wanted to buy the movie's English rights, Coppola directed Dementia Thirteen over the course of nine days. That is a great cult classic. Yeah, it later uh, recouped its expenses and became a cult film among horror buffs. Not I've, a good. I've never movie. seen Dementia it's, Thirteen. It's so definitely yeah. worth seeing. It's definitely worth seeing. If oh. you like horror, if you like Coppola, if you like seeing the origin stories of your favorite filmmakers, yeah, yeah. it's always worth a look. It's always worth a look to see what these guys did with no budget. Yeah. And because the creativity comes through, yeah. the genius comes through, not always. But yeah. there's, you know, yeah. you're always going to see hints of this guy, you know, it's like yeah. Boxcar Bertha with Scorsese or, yeah. you know, this. There's always a little something there to, to, to keep you. Yeah, that it, was, it was worth watching. In the 90s when I was in college, like I got to see Aronofsky's first film, uh, Pie, which was yeah. shot for like 12 grand. Um, uh, Nolan's first movie, Following, which yeah. he shot for like 15 grand. And like Pie. Paul Thomas Anderson, which granted, it, his first movie was still like a million dollar movie. Heart Eight was Paul Thomas Right, and it, that was also with Samuel Jackson and stuff. But it, that was because he grew up in Hollywood. I mean, he, you know, mm. he knew the people. But anyway, the point is, is that it was nice to see those guys in sure. their beginning of their careers. I just, like, pie was just a dude eating, like, six pies. It was crazy. It was just, like, he... Until the moment when he drills a hole through his own head. Yeah, and then pie comes out. Yeah. And he, makes, and he makes another pie with his head pie. It's actually, he eats blueberry pie, and it comes out strawberry rhubarb pie. Yep. Yeah. It's really, uh, but it's, there's, there's meaning behind all of it. It has something to do with the Torah. I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> In 1965, uh, Coppola won the annual Sam- Samuel Golden Award for Best Screenplay, uh, Pilma Pilma, written by a UCLA student. 
Okay. Uh, which I, I don't know if that actually got made or not. Uh, in 1966, Coppola bought the rights to the David Benedictus novel You're a Big Boy Now and merged it with a story idea of his own, res- resulting in his UCLA thesis project You're a Big Boy Now, which earned Coppola his Master of Fine Arts degree from UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television in 1967. All right. Uh, You're a Big Boy Now sounds like it's still another nudie cutie. <laughs> yeah, or some Charlie Brown. Ugh, yeah. You're a Big Boy Now, Charlie Brown. Yeah. Stop crying. Uh, the film also received a theatrical release via Warner Brothers and earned critical acclaim. Geraldine Page was nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Globe Award for her performance. She's a great actor. That's pretty crazy to have, uh, you know, like your, I mean, your essentially your thesis project be like, oh yeah, my actor got nominated for an Oscar. Well, yeah, but I mean, Geraldine Page was a well-known actor. No, no, I know, but I mean, like that's you know, it's, it, you're on that highway to success. Yeah, but yeah. it was also different back then because there were real films. You know, right, I mean, it right. wasn't like it was, you know, it wasn't like. Film school today, where you just got yeah, your camp, yeah. not camcorder, but you know you have your digital quarter, <laughs> right? And you got right. all your friends, or you, you know, you have all these yeah. desperate people wanting to be in your stupid UCLA movie. Yeah, yeah. So it was around this time that Coppola had the idea for the conversation. The character of Harry Call was inspired by surveillance technology expert Martin Kaiser, who would eventually serve as a technical consultant on the film. Cool. According to Kaiser, the final scene of the film in which Call is convinced he is being eavesdropped in his apartment, cannot find the listening device, and consoles his consoles himself by playing his saxophone, was inspired by the passive covert listening devices created by Leon Theremin, such as the Great Seal Bug. Yeah, the Great Seal Bug. Yeah. It was made out of an actual seal, and it yeah. was really big. Yeah, well, And people are like, why is there a live seal in here? I'm like, don't worry about it. That's just a Ronnie the Seal. <laughs> he couldn't find out where the bug was because it was the instrument itself. Theremin's secret listening device, The Thing, hung for seven years in plain view in the United States Ambassador's Moscow office and enabled Soviet agents to eavesdrop on secret conversations. Oh, wow. Yeah, that actually happened. Uh, Theremin is most famous for his invention of the Theremin, one of the first electronic musical instruments and the first to be mass-produced. Yeah. Actually, when we were in Phoenix at the Musical Instrument Museum, I actually got to play one. It's the first time I ever got to play one. At Zombie Joe's, we had a Theremin. Oh, yeah? We had a Theremin for that... That radio play thing. Oh, that's right. That's right. And somebody yeah. was... The other... Yeah. It's a fun instrument to play. Yeah. It's weird. It's like magic. It can be heard in Bernard Herrmann's score for The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, it can be heard most prominently in the Beach Boys hit Good Vibrations, which actually, funny enough, I found out after I wrote the script that it's not a theremin in that. It's actually a device made to sound like a theremin. Cool. Beach Boys are awful. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, that's your opinion. <laughs> uh, I don't like the Beach Boys. But I do like the Theremin. And yeah. I'm glad that the Theremin wasn't besmirched on a Beach Boys album. Yeah, well, there you go. It was just a cheap knockoff of a Theremin because that's what the Beach Boys do. Because they're a cheap knockoff <laughs> of the Beatles. Coppola also based Call on the protagonist of Herman Hess. Herman Hesse's 1927 novel Steppenwolf, Harry Holler, a total cipher who lives alone in a boarding house. Coppola also made Call religious, originally intending the character to have a confession scene. Coppola said that the practice of confession is one of the earliest forms of the invasion of privacy, earliest forms of surveillance. The character of Call was named Harry Call, C-A-L-L, but a typing error led to his being named Harry Call, C-A-U-L, and the name stuck. In the script? Yeah. Okay. Francis Ford Coppola liked how the meaning of the word call, a birth defect causing a membrane to surround the head, related to the character. Okay. Yeah. 
This ties in strongly with both Harry's transparent rain jacket, which he wears for the majority of the film, and also the fact that Harry is occasionally viewed through a translucent sheet of plastic when threatened, such as by his rival during the party scene. Uh, Bernie Moran, you remember, he goes behind it. It was oh, yeah. such a great shot. Come on, Harry. Tell me how you did it, Harry. <laughs> Shortly after Coppola completed Finian's Rainbow in 1968, a musical starring Petula Clark and Fred Astaire, where he would meet George Lucas, forming a lifelong friendship, Coppola announced the conversation as his next film. Uh, I really liked Finian's Rainbow. Fin- um, Finian's Rainbow. I, I, I think you should call it Finian's Rainbow. <laughs> That's my uh, suggestion, Mr. Coppola. <laughs> Uh, okay, great. We should be friends. <laughs> I'm going to make a Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, he cannot get any studios or production companies to back the project, so it was shelved indefinitely. Sure. I mean, it's a tough sell. I, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the only reason he was able to do it was because of the enormous success of The Godfather in 1972. The what? Yeah, this little movie called The Godfather. It's about a guy who... His best friend has a baby, and they're like, we need you to be the godfather. And he's like, okay. And he just plays with the baby, and he accidentally kills it. it uh, wow, I was going to say it culminates in the scene where during the uh, baptism, the baby pees on the priest. No, he the, the baby's, they're in a restaurant, and the baby's crying and crying and crying and crying. So he excuses himself, goes to the bathroom, finds the gun, and brings <laughs> it back out. And Well, you got to watch it, it to see All right. The godfather. That <laughs> Check baby it out. didn't cry anymore. Check That's all I'm out. saying. Uh, so Gene Hackman was ha- cast as Harry Call. Uh, by this point in his career, Hackman had been nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Supporting Actor for Bonnie and Clyde, and for I Never Sang for My Father, losing both, unfortunately, but winning Best Actor for The French Connection. Yes, and we did The French Connection last week, and I just yes. want to point out, yes. unfortunately, yeah. we just lost William Friedkin. Yeah, just this week. Oh, freaking William Friedkin! So sad. I Super didn't even... I, yeah. I mean, but look, the guy was in his 80s, but still. Yeah. 80s is young at this point. Yeah. And, you know, you got Clint Eastwood still directing in the 90s. Yeah. So he, you know... the guy. Look. It just makes me scared for the other directors and actors I know in their 80s. Yes. I mean, I'll look at it. Uh, you know, truth is, all of our greats are hitting their 80s. I know. Coppola, Scorsese. Good old Marty Scorsese. Yeah. Uh, during the three-year period after The French Connection, Hackman starred in 10 movies and made one extremely famous cameo. Just give me a lot of movies. Just give me a lot of movies. Making him the most prolific actor at the time. In 1972, he was in Cisco Pike, a drama starring Chris Christopherson in his first leading role as a musician who turns to selling marijuana to make ends meet, who was then blackmailed by police officer Hackman. Get weed? <laughs> yeah. Well, you better give me some money. I'm putting you in jail. Oh. That's it. That's the whole movie. Yeah. You got, a, you got a good voice. I like you singing. Uh, funny enough, it was not received well and was a box office failure, but has since become a cult classic. Really? I've, uh, I've, I've never I've seen never Cisco Pike. Yeah, I will curious to check it out. Uh, 1972 also was Prime Cut, a crime drama starring Lee Marvin, who portrays a, a mob enforcer from the Chicago Irish mob sent to Kansas to collect a debt from a meatpacker boss played by Hackman. That I've seen. That is fun. No, oh, it's a good movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good movie, like all 70s movies to me yeah. are good movies. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> the picture co-stars Sissy Spacek in her first credited on-screen role as a young orphan being sold into prostitution. Plus, you can't go wrong with Lee Marvin oh, and yeah. Gene Hackman. Well, no, of course not. It also stars Eddie Egan, who Hackman portrays in The French Connection. I'm Eddie Egan. <laughs> he's he's <laughs> probably plays a meat packer. I'm Eddie Egan, yeah. I'm packing, racist. Packing his giant head into the... Packing some meat. Can't get my head through the door. <laughs> they mistook me for a bull. Uh, it's my head. 
And he was also in the Poseidon Adventure, the Irwin Allen disaster movie starring just about everyone working in Hollywood at the time. Ah, so much fun. Such a fun movie. Go back yes. and, and experience, experience our disaster yes. movie show, which is a, an immersive show where we actually experience disasters. Uh, uh, yeah. You should totally listen to it. It's really great. In 1973, he starred in Scarecrow with Al Pacino about two men who travel from California to Pittsburgh to start a business. Yeah. It was really boring. Because uh, you know what the business was? Stationary. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm just making that. <laughs> I haven't seen it. <laughs> Actually, to be honest, that, that wouldn't surprise me. Let's go um, start a stationery business. I have a bunch of pens. Oh, I got some papers. Uh, it actually tied for the highest honor it can that year, but was a commercial failure. So it probably was about stationery because the French <laughs> love stationery. Yes, they do. They love their pens and papers, their plumes and <laughs> their plumes. <laughs> uh, in 1974, in addition to starring in The Conversation, Hackman also starred in Zandy's Bride, a Western co-starring Liv Ullman. That's actually a really good movie. Uh, it was known as For Better or For Worse when released on U.S. television. There was a cartoon strip called For Better or Worse, but it wasn't about yeah. that. No, well, this family. is For Better or For Worse. Oh. Yeah. Uh, for Better or Worse, I read growing up. I sure, mean, we all did. Yeah, yeah. Anybody who had the newspaper in comics. <laughs> That's true. Uh, that same year, he also made the cameo as Harold, the blind man in Young Frankenstein. Come in, come in. Oh, I've saved all this stuff. I have a great cigar. You want a cigar? Oh, that is such an amazing scene. Such a great movie. But you wanted, A, you wanted to just see how amazing Gene Hackman is. Yeah. And yeah. how amazing Peter Boyle is. And yeah. if you listen to the last show... I thought Peter Boyle would be the only other person that would have done an equally as good job as Popeye Doyle. Right. And this just proves yeah. how brilliant they are together because <laughs> it's just – it's so play, – it's played completely straight by Gene Hackman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. he's not winking at the camera or anything. <laughs> no, he's and not. he's so excited to have a guest at – oh, God, I can't wait till we do that Oh, movie. we're going to totally do Young Frankenstein. Young yeah, Frankenstein yeah, yeah. is a perfect comedy. Yeah, I agree. In 1975, after the conversation, he starred in The French Connection 2, the sequel to The French Connection, which did not do as well as the first film. No, because it was all about um, dancing. <laughs> ballroom dancing. Yeah, The French Connection 2, Ballroom Dancing Boogaloo. Yeah, Popeye yeah. Doyle goes to France to join. Well, he's going to France to find the guy. And, like, in the first two minutes, he finds him. He's like, you're arrested. And he's like, well, my flight doesn't leave for three days. What do I do? And he sees an advertisement for a dancing competition. Yeah. So... You know, he's like, he has to make a connection for a partner right. in France, and there's two of them, because right. they're dancing, hence... The French connection part to... Part deux. Ouais. <laughs> uh, Lucky Lady, co-starring Liza Minnelli and Burt Reynolds, written and directed by Stanley Donan. That's the movie that I was thinking about that was Funny Girl, that I thought oh, that James Conn was in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Night Moves, a dark neo-noir with appearances from Melanie Griffith and James Woods. That's actually really, really great interesting movie. movie. Interesting movie. I wouldn't oh, okay. say great, but I would definitely Good. say worth a, a look. It's a good noir. Okay. Uh, and uh, finally, one of the last ten movies he was in in three years was Bite the Bullet, a western with Hackman playing a former Rough Rider, co-starring Candace Bergen and James Coburn, about a 700-mile horse race in 1906. Yes, I rode with Teddy Roosevelt. I'm a Rough Rider. All these movies are pretty, you know, they're not like little movies. No, no, no. They were big. I mean, like, he he was a huge... It's funny, because, uh, and we'll talk about this next week, but when he did Mrs. Burning, also was the most prolific actor for three years before and after that movie. I think, A, he's a director's actor, so yeah. everybody wants to work with him. Yeah, yeah. He, from everything that we've learned in these last few movies, is extremely dedicated and serious about his craft to the oh, point where yes. he gets really cranky yeah, whenever yeah. he can't get... He can't figure it out, man. Yeah. He gets mad. He gets mad at himself. 
Yeah. Um, but he also just has that that effusive personality. He just seems like he would be a fun guy to be around. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. He's just got a gleam in his eye. Maybe he, he could he be a be, jerk. Who knows? But to me, no, he just but seems he's, like. I think he's, he would be a nice guy. I feel like if, if he liked you, you guys would be friends forever. I would like that. Yeah. I'm going to go wherever he is now and be He's his in old Santa buddy. Fe. He has a ranch outside of Santa Fe. Nice. I'll go to the coffee shop that he bikes to and be like, hi, Gene Hackman. Let's be friends. Apparently, he eats a lot of Wendy's. I like <laughs> Wendy's. I'll get a baconator. He's still skinny as hell. It's really weird. Anyway. Well, that's the thing. When you get old, either you get really skinny or you get really fat. Yeah. But he's still, I mean, but he's 93. He still looks good. I mean, he's still, you know. It's jeans, baby. It's in the jeans. You can eat whatever. It's the jeans. It's the jeans Hackmans. It's the jeans of jeans Hackmans. (laughs) So for the conversation, Hackman actually learned to play the saxophone. Every every time. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I learned how to play it. Anybody could play it. That's, it just blows my mind, though, that every time he's on there, because they easily could have done, it could have been anybody else. No, he did a good job. But he wanted to play the saxophone. And he only needed to learn how to play it to be. Proficient enough to be for those scenes. Harry Call, sure, yeah. sure. But he did, you know, he had good timing, good rhythm. He played along with the it looked the jazz al- albums. You know, that's the kind of actor he is. He was like, oh, I'm going to do it. You gotta, you gotta sop that reed, baby. You gotta get it all wet. <laughs> Uh, when he was cast in the conversation, Hackman was a fit, good-looking, relatively young man, being around 40 when the movie was filmed. In order to personify Harry's weary, aging, and unhappy existence, Hackman grew a pathetic-looking mustache, wore ill-fitting glasses, and had a wardrobe picked out that was at least 10 years out of date. Plus such a weird hairdo. It almost looked like a helmet or a hat. Well, and it's like it went. His hair had receded way back. Well, like he, was, his hair has always been receded, but they, they it, got rid of was, that little floof. Yeah, that was in yeah. The, that's always been in the front. They got yeah. his front floof gone, front which floof. made him look yeah. more, more old and sad. Uh, Coppola specifically told Hackman he wanted hair to look like a nudnik, a Yiddish word referring to a person who was boring and a pest. Nudnik. Nud, nudnik. Yeah, nudnik. Like a, yeah, nudnik. That's the name of my new nudie cutie. Nudnik. Yeah, a schmuck. Uh, These character choices led Hackman to have a very difficult time adapting to the character, being so much unlike himself. It's not like me. Well, you know what, Um, Gene? It's called acting, right? How how about you try acting? Why don't you try acting? (laughs) But it's not me. I don't understand. All these people want me to be something that's not me. (laughs) Coppola said that Hackman's efforts to tap into the character made the actor moody and irritable on set, but otherwise Coppola got along well with him. Well, also, him being moody and irritable on set Lends itself to these characters, Popeye Doyle or Harry Call. Oh, no, it totally does. Yeah. I lo- that fits. Oh, totally. But Harry Call is a really complicated character. Oh, very. He, because he is so confident in what he does. He's the best at what he does. And there yeah. is no bones about that. He has yeah. no compunction. You know, the greatest is when he's at the convention and the guys are like, oh, God, it's you. It's Harry. You're yeah, the best yeah. in the world. Come, please pose just, with this. Just take it. Take, take it, it for, for free. free. I, only, I build my own stuff. He doesn't yeah. even care. Could you just take a picture in front just, of the sun? Yeah, anything. Anything, please. But he knows how good he is. Uh, but he is also fiercely defensive. And, yeah. you know, when it comes to, like, the the New York job that got him to leave. Well, that's but that's just it, is that I, I think a lot of that is that he – his his – I think his mantra forever, and and it's in the movie, the beginning of the movie, is that it's a job. Yeah. I, don't, I don't care what happens with the, the recording. That's not my I just made concern. the recording. I just want to make sure it's the best recording you can hear, and then after that. And, of course, New York changed that, and I, and, and I think he realized that the consequences of some of his recordings and what can happen 
which is what causes him to become more involved in this case. And then, like, the whole thing with Terry Gar and, yes. like, kind of just throwing her aside because he's like, no, I need to be back to being this cold, not caring person. Well, he threw Terry Gar aside because she asked too many questions. Well, th- but that's what I mean. I, exactly. And any time anybody tries, he's so paranoid and so guarded about everything right. that even asking, like, do you live alone? He's like, what do you want to know that for? What do you want to know that for? And it's just yeah. like, how'd you, how'd you get my phone number? How'd you know this? How'd yeah. you get inside my, my apartment? Yeah, the whole scene where it's his birthday and there's yeah. he opens up his multi-lock door with an alarm, which alarms weren't very popular back then. Right. This is, you right. know, this is a very different thing. And somehow they, the landlord knew how to turn off the alarm and everything. And that that gives credence to the fact that his... Place was bugged because right. they can get in there. Right. Um, but yeah, he, and, and he's like, I'm going to put a combination lock on. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. It's, I'm the only one that's going to have the combination. Right. And so even though he he's so confident in what he does as a human being, he's not confident at all. Yeah, no, totally. And nothing matters more to him oh, yeah. than the job. I mean, he's not very sexual. He tries to be. But it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, all of the women basically have to force him to be intimate. Well, and, but that's, and I think that's, this is what I was driving at, is that I think when he realized he was starting to look, kind of let that guard down, it was like, oh, no, 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 no. I got to put that wall back up. Because, because as soon as he let the guard down, the lady betrayed him and stole all the tapes. Right. Exactly. So, and, and, I mean, it's and not the first wrong. time I saw I, that, I was like, even the first time I saw that, I'm like, she's totally going to steal those tapes. I didn't, I didn't even think about it. Like, she, you know, because... She telegraphs it, though, not in, like, a, yeah. a a bad way, but if you watch it again, yeah. you'll see that, you know. It's very obvious she wants those tapes. Well, because she ingratiates herself to him. She right. won't leave. She was supposed to leave with the other mustachioed guy. Yeah. When he gets drunk, he gets sloppy. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's another reason why he doesn't like to be around people. Yeah. Because, you know, he's he started drinking. He started, like, bragging about his stuff, which is not normally what he does. He keeps it guarded and his secret's guarded. And, yeah. You know, I think well, he just I, got kind of sick of Bernie, you well, know, and he, busting he his chops. Literally, when she's stealing tapes, he's having a dream about how he needs to help Cindy Williams. Yep. Like, he's like, you know, and it's like, that's not the payoff is that someone stole the tapes. Sure. It's like, he's, he's getting too close. Well, as soon as he heard the line, you know... He's, I think he's going to kill us, or he'd kill us too, or whatever. He'd kill us too, yeah. You know, which which uh, triggers his PTSD. Right. Triggers, right, right. you know, hit him back to New York. And and as much as – the funny thing is – or not the funny thing, but the brilliant thing is, is his character is so detached from other people in reality because he, he had to do that as a defense mechanism right. after New York. Right. And so – and it's just – Heartbreaking that when he finally kind of lets his guard down a little bit, yeah, then he's totally betrayed. Oh, yeah, again. I know, I know, I know. It's <laughs> it's really awful. But for the record, Hackman has stated multiple times that the conversation was his favorite role. Great, it was the best role he's done. Look, the guy is, an, and that's saying a lot. Yeah, because, because he's he, had some great parts. He's another guy. Everything he's in, he's great. Doesn't matter. Yeah, you know, even if it's Welcome to Mooseport or whatever, <laughs> you know, he's still going to be great. It's yeah. still worth watching because you're going to get a great Gene Hackman performance. The guy yeah. never phones it in, and this is the most non-Gene Hackman, Gene Hackman performance, oh, totally of anything. Totally, and, completely opposite of him as a person, and it's seamless. You, it's not him working at it. It's not him, you know, no. stretching really hard. And you're like, wow, that's Gene Hackman trying to be a nerd. No, you lose yourself. You forget that's, it's Gene Hackman. That's Harry Call, man. Yes, that's exactly. It. it is such that's a. Why, <laughs> when he, the camera pans by, I was like, oh my god, it's Gene Hackman. Right. I mean, that with the 
translucent coat. The whole point of the beginnings is to show that he's just a face in the crowd. Yeah, that the he's guy just is a guy. Another yeah. nudnik, another That's schlub. how he does his job. Exactly. He does it well. He has to be completely anonymous for right. his job to work. Right. And, you know, he gets frustrated with himself and he takes it out on other people and yeah. you know that's what he does to uh to uh john Cazale. you know yeah. john Cazale is like his right hand man and his buddy and oh man that, that that scene that gets so uncomfortable and he's just for no it's just because he can't express himself right he he pushes him away and then yeah when john Cazale, rightly so takes a job with uh, Bernie Moran, right? You know he feels betrayed, right? And he's like, "You got to come back to me, and you got to help me out." And then he guilts him into helping him. Well, somebody's after me, so can you help me with that? Right, right. And of course, Cazale's gonna be like, "Okay, I'll help you because you're my buddy." Yeah, yeah. Because he looks at him as a friend, and he looks up to him as yeah. a mentor and yeah. a god. I mean, the way he brags about—I mean, he pops the tape on, right? Because right. he's so proud of he, the job that they did. Yeah, or when he shows, like, here's the layout. How would you do how it? How would you do it? And it's it's like, well, I know how Harry did it because yeah. he's brilliant. Right. And then Moran's like, uh, yeah. uh, I'd, I'd uh, bike their clothes. Well, you can't mic their clothes. You don't know what they're going to wear. I'd do a bump Which, and drop. The irony is that he literally mic'd Harry Cole's clothes. <laughs> yes, with the pen. Well, no, yeah. I mean, with the, you know. That, no, no, but I mean, but I'm saying is that that's the first thing he goes to. That's the brilliance of this writing, brilliance of this writing, because it's the first thing he goes to is the thing he literally just did yeah. earlier that day. Yeah. Yeah. I it's mean, just, it's, yes. Yeah. So John Cazale, we're going to talk about John Cazale a little bit. Uh, not a lot because he has in, been in so many good movies. And, and when we talk about him with another one of his movies, we'll get deeper into his career. Good, because this guy um, is is one of the greatest American actors ever. Yeah. And he was married to uh, Meryl Streep. Yeah. Uh, he started his career as a stage actor, only acting in film periodically. Between 1972 and 1978, Cazale acted in five films, all of which were nominated for Best Picture. The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Cazale was an actor's actor. He didn't give an F about fame. or He would only do movies that he thought were worthy of his right. talent. Right. And he preferred stage because that was the actor's medium. Yeah. And, yeah. you know... Yeah. He was the definition of, like, the 70s actor, you know. He was the guy that Pacino and uh, – who's the little guy? Uh, Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman, yeah. He's the guy they all look up to. He's yeah, the guy that yeah. they all revered because there was nobody like him. No, and no. much like Roy Scheider, he had that gift that made every actor around him shine right, and be better right. and look better because yeah. his – he was so deep in the scene. He was so invested and so, like, not reacting in a steel focus kind of way. No, no. But in a way that just brings you into it and creates yes. a sense of realism. Yeah. That's, that not, there's not a lot of actors that could do that. This no, guy was no. magic. That's the scene where Hackman is, as Harry's essentially telling him off. Yeah. Of, like, why are you getting so involved in this? The hurt on his face. Yeah. Of his hero essentially telling him off is so palpable and yeah. it's so heartbreaking. Yeah, like it's so good. And then in and conversely, the his attitude when you know yeah. Harry sees him working for right. Moran, right? 
you know, he's got a little bit of like, a few bunny. You yeah, know, it's yeah, like, like, like but, you, but again, that falls because he's still got that I worship. Think, yeah, yeah. Such a great performance. In 1977, Kazale was diagnosed with lung cancer, but he chose to complete his role in The Deer Hunter. Unfortunately, he died shortly after in New York City on March 13th, 1978. He was so good in The Taken Deer Taken way too soon. Uh, but the only actor that literally every movie he was in was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, it had a it's lot crazy. to do with him. Oh yeah, of course, of course. Just one of the, one of the most, one of the greatest thefts of talent, yeah. That we've we've had. I mean, yeah, he, yeah. I would, God, I would have loved to see what he did in the seventies and the eighties and yeah. in the nineties, and love to see what he would have done as an old man. And yeah, you know, he yeah. would have been in Goodfellas, and you know, oh, he would have yeah. been. Oh, he would have been all over that stuff. Oh yeah. God. Yeah. Uh, Alan Garfield was cast as William P. Bernie Moran. Hey, Harry. Harry. This is be partners, Harry. Come on. I'm the best guy, Harry. And you're the best guy, Harry. Come on. Uh, Garfield appeared in over 100 films and television shows. His debut film was Orgy Girls 69, released in 1968. Interesting. I wonder why it wasn't released in 69. I don't, I'm... They probably just wanted the 69. I don't know. Was that a thing back then? Yeah. All right. Uh, he is mostly known for playing supporting parts like nervous villains, corrupt businessmen, and politicians. He's really good at being that part. Yeah. He's really yeah. good at being obnoxious. He's really good at being nervous. Yeah. He's really good at being uh, annoying. The nudge. Yeah. yeah. He's just got that gift. That that gift that I always wonder, like, because there's so many, like, the, uh, the guy from uh, Atherton? Was it William Atherton? The guy from oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Die Hard. Yes. Who plays the yes, reporter? The reporter, yeah. And he's also in Ghostbusters. There's certain actors Atherton, yeah. that play the a hole so well. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And they're pigeonholed in that because there's nobody that does it better. I just wonder what it's like in real life for them. I know, I know. Because you know, people just come up and be like, "I hate you, man. You're a jerk." <laughs> you would say, oh. "I'm glad that lady punched you in uh, in that in that Die Hard movie." I'm an actor. He's playing a part, pal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Garfield's lead roles included the 1971 film Cry Uncle, the 1978 film Skateboard with Leif Garrett, and the 1982 film Get Crazy, co-starring Malcolm McDowell, Daniel Stern, and Ed Bagley Jr. Get crazy. Get crazy. Which is something that Ed Bagley Jr. cannot do. <laughs> Why? Get crazy. I was just referencing. Oh, because it's so damn boring. Long conversation yeah. with him at that party. <laughs> yeah, the most boring conversation I've ever had in with a celebrity was with Ed Bagley Jr., but you should have just yelled at him, get crazy, man, get crazy. I was at, uh, I was, I was asleep, I think, I think by the end. <laughs> but I was at Roseanne, Roseanne's birthday party in the eight, late 80s, you know, when her show yeah. was real big. Yeah. It was a crazy party because uh, Norm MacDonald was in the corner doing stand-up <laughs> so and to nobody, so I walked over and basically had Norm MacDonald just Do giving, you, doing stand-up to one-man show. Yeah. That's awesome. Hey, yeah. He's just looking at me. Hey. Private show. Yeah, I ain't doing jokes for you. It was like, we were both so uncomfortable, but he couldn't. <laughs> Stop, and I couldn't. St- I didn't want to walk away because nobody else was really paying attention. And it was so funny. He's just such a brilliant guy. But I was at the bar, and it was a for a long time. It was a sober party because both of them had yeah had given up drinking drugs. But uh, and so I'm sitting at a bar sober in my twenties with Ed Begley Jr. and he's just yammering on about his electric car. And this is before <laughs> electric cars were anything big. Yeah. And it was just like, dude, nobody cares. Neat. <laughs> And it was just so, like, technical and dry. And I'm like, God, man. Oh, God love him. He sticks to his guns. But I love him as an actor. Yeah. And he was super great. nice and a uh, yes, great guy. Yes. And, and and talking to a, an annoying, could you imagine annoying, chubby 20-year-old <laughs> me coming up to you at a party and him taking all the time? And here I am disparaging him wow. for being boring. He's a great person. Wow. 
I don't know, but he was uh, he was great to me, even though yeah. it was my most boring. <laughs> the part of Bernie Moran was originally supposed to go to Timothy Carey, well-known in Hollywood for possibly being the weirdest person to have a professional career, making him notoriously famous. Okay. Uh, do you know who Timothy Carey is? I don't. He played South Dakota Slim in various beach movies in the 60s. Okay. Uh, he was in... Um, beach Blanket Bingo? The Beach Blanket Bingo. With uh, as the bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. With Paul Lind. With Paul Lind, yeah. It's a beach blanket bingo. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, he's such a weird dude. He was originally. Paul Lind or him? No, well, Both. no, Paul Lind was fine. <laughs> Paul Lind was fine compared to Timothy Carey. He was originally supposed to play Luca Brasi in The Godfather at Coppola's request, but turned it down to star in the TV pilot Tweets Ladies of Pasadena, which sense. went nowhere. Really? With such an uh, amazing title like that? Uh, Coppola tried to cast him in the conversation, but when told due to budget restraints that any post-voice work he would do would be unpaid, he demanded in his contract that a producer for the conversation come mow his lawn. Okay. That's, um, that's kind of <laughs> weird. <laughs> so they fired him, and Alan Garfield was cast instead. I'm not mowing anyone's lawn. Uh, I, I, at some point, we're going to have to go more, because he was such a weird person. Well, we should do a month of just weirdos. Oh, God, he was just odd. He was an odd man. Uh, Garfield would go on to have a very long career. In 1999, Garfield suffered a stroke before filming The Ninth Gate, starring Johnny Depp. Uh, director Roman Polanski opted to use Garfield's paralyzed face for his character rather than conceal it or recast the role. I kind of—I've seen The Ninth Gate. It's not a good movie. No. I kind of want to see it again for that. Uh, same, same. I remember not hating it, but being like, "Oh, okay." What was the point? It just it was, meandered. Yeah, yeah. It didn't do anything. It was like most of uh, look. Hey, it was uh, Polanski post rape. Not a lot of great work. No, no, no. I'm standing by it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Garfield suffered another massive stroke in 2004, and thereafter was a long-term nursing care resident at the Motion Picture Home. Oh, I uh, hate yet, yet another one that was put in the Motion Picture Home. I hope they take good care of them there. They do. I think they do. Uh, Garfield died of complications related to COVID-19 and his previous strokes at the Motion Picture and Television Country House and Hospital on April 7th, 2020, at the age of 80. Ugh. Poor yeah. guy. Yeah. To get killed by COVID. But, and that was the fact is that he was in that home for 16 years. Oh, man. I'm sorry, that but sucks. blow my brains out. Yeah. I could not. I remember we put, uh, we put, um, my grandmother had to go. And it was a really, really, when she first went to this place, mm-hmm. they had like little homes for the non. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Super messed up people. Yeah. You know, up to whatever care. And I remember when it got to the point where she had to like have. Room care, you know, where she yeah, just had a room. Yeah. And uh, I was wheeling her around in her wheelchair and stuff. The old stepdad, stepdad came up to me and he's like, if it gets to this, put a bullet in my brain. Promise me. I'm All like, right. okay, thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks for that really okay. Yep. <laughs> um, I don't want to murder you now. And now you want me to. <laughs> Neat. Uh, where were you 20 years ago? Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it was just like, and I'm the same way. I mean, I don't, it's quality over quantity. In yeah. life, you know. Oh, no, agreed. Cindy Williams was cast as Anne, one half of the conversation. Yeah. Uh, Williams is best known for playing Shirley Feeney on the television sitcoms Happy Days from 1975 to 79, and in the spinoff Laverne and Shirley from 76 to 82. I just realized that the only one from Laverne and Shirley that's left is Michael McKeon. That's true. That is totally true. He's oh, my the God. the only one. 
Lenny. Yeah. Lenny outlived them all. Lenny outlived them all. Lenny standing on a pile of bodies. I told you. I didn't know that Laverne and Shirley in Happy Days were running concurrently. Oh yeah. I didn't. I didn't realize that. Yeah, and Mark and Mindy. They were oh, all yeah. spinoffs of yeah. each other. Right. 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 Uh, she previously appeared with Harrison Ford in American Graffiti in 1973, a role she would reprise in the 1979 sequel, More American Graffiti. Yeah, she played Ron Howard's girlfriend in the first American Graffiti, and then the, yes. in Ameri- More American Graffiti, which is a really interesting film. Have you seen it? No, no. It's very interesting. It's like it's told with multiple um, screens on the screen. Oh, really? And it's got a very interesting visual style. It, it wasn't uh, George Lucas. I'm right. not sure who directed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it takes place afterwards, um, yeah. During the Vietnam War, right. they're married now with kids, oh. uh, and that's not going well, ooh, if I ooh, remember correctly. Ooh, but, ooh. but uh, it's just so funny that they were in those two movies together, and then they were in Happy Days together, yeah. And yeah. it's been off of Happy Days, and it's all '50s stuff, yeah. You know, it's just it's really weird. <laughs> Make a career out of it, yeah. But she, you know, again, it's like after that, nobody saw her as anything but. Sure. Yeah, that, that was it, yeah. Uh, Williams would continue to appear in TV shows after the and Shirley, but mainly worked on stage doing national tours of musicals. Uh, she died on January 23rd, 2023, after a brief illness at the age of 75. Oh. Yeah. Frederick Forrest was cast as Mark, the other half of the conversation. Frederick Forrest is, again, one of the most underrated... Oh, agreed. Uh, ...journeyman character actors. He's yeah. in just about everything. Yeah, I and don't... I didn't realize, like... Just his name, I was like, oh, okay. But once I saw his face, it was like, oh, that guy. Like, he's very he's different in this than he. I yeah. mean, he's a good. That, 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 that's the calling card. Yeah, calling card of right. the great uh, character actors is they can disappear into the uh, role. Yeah, totally. And you're like, oh, okay, that is that guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Forrest became uh, Forrest came to public attention for his performance in When the Legends Die in 1972, which earned him a nomination for the Golden Globe Award for Most Promising Newcomer. Nice. He went on to receive Academy and Golden Globe Award nominations in the Best Supporting Actor category for his portrayal of Houston Dyer in musical drama The Rose in oh, 1979. He was, he was great in that. Yep. And uh, so was uh, Bette Midler. Oh, nice. That nice. was her debut. Oh, really? I believe, yeah. Oh. Uh, Coppola and Forrest worked together on four other films after The Conversation. He portrayed J. Chef Hicks in Francis Ford Coppola's epic war film Apocalypse Now so in good. 1979. So good. I didn't even, I literally didn't realize it was him. I always get him, his character mixed up with, uh, I think it's Timothy Bottoms, oh, who yeah. takes all the acid. <laughs> I haven't seen Apocalypse Now in a long time. Well, we're going to do the movie and we'll do the Redux version. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do the, you know, the, the definitive. The, the yeah. I think we should do like a definitive month and we could do Blade oh, yeah. Runner and there you go. that and That'd be good. something else. Uh, he was also in One from the Heart in 1982. Uh, Hammett in 1982 as well, playing Dashiell Hammett. Have you seen One from the Heart? No. It is not a good movie. It is a really weird musical. Oh, yes. yes Tom Waits yes. is in it. Weird. Yeah, and he's really good in it. Um, I, I should probably see it now. It probably would be better. I remember watching it in 82 because I heard there were boobies in it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, That's you got it. you watched it. Back then, as a, as a, as a burgeoning young uh, adolescent, you had to find your boobies That's where you found them. There was no porn. precisely why I watched Revenge of the Nerds. Sure. <laughs> or Porky's. Or, yeah. And you scheduled it. It was like, oh, my goodness, Porky's going to be on an 8, 815. So that means oh, the yeah. new scene is at 838. My parents are in the <laughs> other room. So, yes, it was a lot of, I think, uh, we, we became very smart in, the, in our quests for yes. pleasuring. Yes. Because we really had to be. 
Yeah, you had, yeah. There wasn't just the internet where you can type in boobies and they. Yeah, that's easy now. You had to find a stash. <laughs> oh, old, kids these days! You had to find old magazines. Are you grandpa's nudie cuties? Break into the neighbor's old Plymouth that has a stack of Playboys oh, in yeah. it. Oh yeah, or get your get your grandpa's eight millimeter nudie cuties. Oh, uh, So he also worked with Coppola in 1988 in the movie Tucker, the Man in His Dream. Oh, such uh, an underrated movie. I really love that movie. I, it was one of those I saw very young, but I loved it. And an absolute great uh, um, Jeff Bridges. Yeah, oh, so good. So, so good. good. And such a great story, too, because it really was an amazing car. Yeah. And yeah. it's it was a, a great was, story about the corporate America crushing a dream. Little man crushing Yay. a dream. Yeah. And, 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 and had a superior product. Yay, capitalism. Yeah. Uh, on television, he played Captain Richard Jenko in the first season of the Fox television series 21 Jump Street in 1987. Yeah. It's a good thing that they replaced him. Because oh, Jenko really? was like a hippie, and oh, he was really? just kind of like goo-ga-ba-ga-goo-ga-doo. When they brought in Stephen Williams to replace him, yeah. it, it, Stephen Williams has such a great amount of gravitas. Yeah. He's yeah. also a really funny guy and a great yeah, actor in yeah. his own way. But he just was a much better fit and foil. Right, right. Because they're a bunch of goofy kids. And you got this guy who's like a hippie guy and he's yeah, working out yeah. of the church. And it wasn't that he was bad or anything. No, no. It just didn't really fit in. No, it was it was yeah. a... it was. <laughs> they needed a different character that wasn't a crazy hippie. It was basically a toothless version of his falling down character. Yeah, which is the thing I know him most from. Oh, the Nazi army surplus store owner in 1993 and falling down. Hey, take this, man. <laughs> take it. Oh, you're I love this, oh, man. I, you're doing it. You're doing a good thing, man. Oh, God. I just... It's so creepy. He's so, so good. Creepy. So good. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Forrest died at his home in Santa Monica, California on June 23rd, 2023, at the age of 86. Damn. Just Literally, damn. like, six weeks ago. So sad. I mean, 86 recording. is a great yeah. run, but... Ah, yeah. We lost so many good guys and, and gals. Yeah, oh, that sounds so awful. We lost so many great actors 80s, in their eighties, man. It's... I know it's just it's so weird. It's just we, you know, especially since we've been watching so much of this old stuff. Yeah, it just bums me out because I know so I young know. and viral, and yeah. you know, it's just, yeah. we're all gonna get old and die. <laughs> Harrison Ford was cast as Martin Stett. Oh my god! Harrison Ford's part was initially intended to be a small cameo, written as little more than an office assistant. Feeling that the character was one-dimensional, Ford decided to play him as gay, a risky choice in 1974, and personally purchased the loud green silk suit for $900. First of all, it wasn't that... I didn't... I didn't... never Watching it, I didn't think he was gay. No. I mean, that's how subtle it is. And yeah. that's like... That's why Harrison Ford is such an underrated actor, yeah. Yeah. because he is so serious about what he does, yeah. and he's so good at it. And that's why it's so effortless, and that's why people are like, oh, he's just Harrison Ford. <laughs> And that's the brilliant thing, is that it could have just been an office assistant, but for Harrison Ford, knowing that the only, only dialogue he was going to have was going to be with Gene Hackman. Yeah. And so, and and maybe that one scene with Robert Duvall, but like, uh, but knowing that, it was like, I'm going to use this as my, my way of having tension, you know, between us. Oh, it was so great. And it was also such a subtle gay yeah. performance. So good. There was no flouncing. So None of the tropes of the 70s because it was most gay yeah. characters yeah. back then were very stereotypical, very flamboyant, very yeah. obviously obviously gay. Yeah. But this was such a subtle performance where I didn't know until yeah, I, yeah. I read this that yeah. the character was gay, but that's forward for you, man. The guy yeah. is always he's a story as a self-proclaimed storyteller. Mhm. 
And whatever he can do to make the story better, he does. Yeah, he did, exactly. Francis Ford Coppola was at first shocked by the outfit at rehearsals, but after discussing it with Ford, was so impressed with this interpretation that he expanded the role into supporting character, gave the character a name, and had production designer Dean Tuvalaris create an office that reflected the character's orientation. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Well, we'll put weights in it. Yeah. We'll put, yeah. A, we'll put some dumbbells in well, it. Well, he's gay. He must like, he look like at how he looks. <laughs> he likes how he looks. But again, I mean... and. If you're a Harrison Ford fan, and how could you not be? Yeah. It's such a, it's so fun to see him as like 29, 30. Oh my God, he was so young. You know, not looking like him, not looking all buff or whatever. He's just like a. So good. And so subtle. Again, it's all in the eyes and it's all in the body language. And it's like the way he's sitting and stuff. But it's not, he's not telegraphing. Yeah. It's all internal, which is just. That's why Ford is such a great actor. And again, I think Ford is a character actor and a leading man, a character yeah, in the body. Yeah. And I think that's what makes him such a great. It's like Brad Pitt, all those guys. These guys that are character actors and leading man's bodies. Right. They're right. always such great actors because they have, they don't care about the movie star thing. Yeah. They don't yeah. care about the fame thing. They just want to do good work. Yeah. It's yeah. the difference between him and The Rock. So good. Well, yeah, that's true. Uh, no for, offense. For, for, no, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> Ford would go on to work with Coppola again in Apocalypse Now in 1979. And then you would never hear from him again. Yeah. Just and then, disappeared. And then he just went away. Yeah. yeah. I think he was on some TV show or something. Uh, reference any of our Harrison Ford movies we've already covered. <laughs> reference my obsession. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Terry Garr was cast as Amy Fredericks, uh, Harry Call's girlfriend. Uh, Garr started her career as a dancer, appearing as a backup dancer in some Elvis Presley movies. She says her big break came when she was cast in an episode of Star Trek in 1968. Yep, I remember that one. Uh, I, I did not see that. After she started to get some real, after that, she started to get some real acting roles. The conversation shot her into more prominence, as well as starring in Young Frankenstein that same year. So different looking in it. I mean, she looks so young and different and weird. I, 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 even watching it again, I had a hard time thinking. I was like, "That's that's Terry Gar." Such like a it great was just yeah, it's so so good, so giggly and she's weird. So, yeah, she's but she like, was trying. It was such a heartbreaking performance because she was trying really hard to connect. Oh, so hard with Harry, and her nervous laughter made it even more sad. Yeah, because she's just like I think, and and she's calling him on all the stuff that he's probably yeah. doing. It's like sometimes I think you're listening to me on the phone, and you know he is. Yeah, you know he's been watching yeah, her. The fact that she was like, I don't know when you're going to come over, and then when I hear the key in the lock, my toes start dancing. And it's like, oh, man, like, she's so into you, man. Yeah. Like, just open up a little bit. Right. And then he can't. He and can't. then she's like, look, I've had enough. Yeah. And then it's it like, bums him out. And then he's asking the other girl, well, what can I do to get her back? And yeah. it's like, well, nothing, dude. And it change. She got an unlisted number. Yeah. The nail in the coffin yeah. for, for their relationship. Yeah, yeah. And good for her. Yeah. She earned an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress for her role in the Sidney Pollock comedy Tootsie in 1982. Great. I love that movie. That same year, she would reunite with Coppola on his musical One from the Heart, uh, which was not a good movie, <laughs> according to Jim. But I don't know. I mean, honestly, because I, mean, I saw it too young. Right, right. I haven't seen it since then. But I know that it didn't do well. It didn't no, fare well no, it didn't. In, at the it box didn't. office and didn't get great notices either. That's the thing with Coppola. Big hits, big misses. But yeah, big, yeah. Tr- you know, big swings. It's never going to be, at least back then, it was never going to be, it's either going to be a big, great success or a big, great failure. There was it, really it, no... It'll always be interesting. Yes. Yeah. There's always something going on. Maybe yeah. it won't click with the audience, but there's something going on. 
Uh, Gar has had a long career, appearing in 140 movies and TV shows. In October 2002, Gar confirmed that she had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Oh, that was so sad. Uh, she said she started noticing symptom- symptoms while filming Tootsie way back in 1982. That's so crazy. Like yeah. 20 years. Yeah. She probably lived with that without knowing it. In December 2006, Gar had a ruptured brain aneurysm. Oh, my God. The aneurysm left her in a coma for a week, but after therapy, she regained speech and motor skills. And in 2008, she appeared on Late Show with David Letterman to promote Expired, a 2007 film in which she played one of a set of twins. Oh, wow. Her last acting role was in How to Marry a Billionaire, the TV series in 2011. At the age of 78, she's still an active voice in spreading information about MS, hoping to help people realize that there are now treatment op- options available. Yes. She has come out and very flat out said, if you catch it early enough, the medicine is good enough now that you can live a pretty normal life. Yeah. I, I have a friend who was diagnosed um, pretty early on, and they're a doctor. And Oh, wow. Yeah. And, they, uh, and they've... St- They've been able to maintain. Good. For good. Yeah. And she's, I, I mean, I, I love the fact that she's retired from acting, but she's still, she's still using her fame as a, a way to help promote this. Yeah. It's very nice. Yes. It's very altruistic. Yeah. Uh, Robert Shields was cast as the mime. Well, he wasn't cast as the mime. He literally was the mime. <laughs> yes. Uh, Shields was half of the mime act Shields and Yarnell. Oh, my God, Adam. <laughs> you don't realize just how much of a I know, juggernaut. I know. This is going back to that 70s variety show stuff that I totally missed out on. It, I loved 70s variety shows. They were just, it was a way to see all of your favorite stars be weird and goofy yeah. and do skits and sing. But Shields and Yarnell, they were incredible. They were this team. We didn't know if they were married or brother and sister. We didn't know. But, <laughs> and we didn't care as yeah, long as they were miming. They were doing some good miming. But they, we were, uh, for a good, I don't know, like, Eight, maybe ten years. We were all fascinated by, by mimery, by Shields Mime, and Garnell yeah, yeah. and and what's that other guy? Marcel, Marcel Marceau. It's just crazy because everybody hates mimes now. You can't. It's weird. You know, I don't get why people hate mimes. There's a lot of mime backlash, Adam. Uh, so Garnell, the female half of Shields and Garnell, did the body acting work for Dot Matrix and Spaceballs, which oh, yeah. we talk about in our Spaceballs episode. Uh, Shields was discovered by Marcel Marceau doing mime work outside the Hollywood Wax Museum at the age of 18. Oh, you're a mime, just like me. Shields and Yarnell were married but divorced in 86, although they would tour periodically with their act after that. They were also brother and sister. Uh, okay. That's, but yeah. that's in the mime world, that's okay. That's acceptable. Yes. Yeah. How, how else are you going to make more mimes? Right, exactly. And there weren't a lot of mimes back then, so yeah. sometimes you got to do a little I mean, do. As far as I know, there were three. <laughs> that yes. was it. I know. In 2002, Shields met Lori Burke, a singer songwriter in Sedona, and the two were married on September 25th, 2006. Burke was diagnosed with a brain tumor the next spring and died on April 25th, 2007. Oh my god. Sucks. Uh, Shields married Jennifer Griffiths in 2000, December 2009. The couple divorced in 2014. He currently resides in Verde Valley, Arizona, where he creates paintings, sculptures, and jewelry design. All right. He does not mime anymore. Well, he saw the, the miming on the wall, baby, and it was he, no more mimes. He has gone silent. But he was, I mean, it's great. It's just so funny because you would just walk around and a mime would be there. And a yeah. mime would, well, like, mimic you. This is in the movie. Like, and the best part is that at the, in the first scene with the, and I, this is what I love about this movie and how it keeps going back to the conversation. And, like, all of a sudden it's like, oh, there he is. And he's just in their face. Yes. <laughs> and then he's around the corner. He's in their face again. It's like, well, that's the thing. The movie is so brilliant how the conversation evolves. Yeah. It's one thing. Yeah. And then by the time we get to the end and all of the information is yeah. deciphered and we get to the actual truth, 
And even the, even when he gets all that stuff, he still misinterprets it. Yeah. Gets it all wrong. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's so good. Uh, Robert Duvall was cast as the director. Uh, not going to talk very much about him because it was a very small part. And in an uncredited film, part in the film. And he never did anything after uh, that. No, no. Uh, Duvall was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for The Godfather. Uh, yeah, and then he went away. But we'll talk about Duvall when he's actually in a movie longer than 45 seconds. Yeah, he was he was so good. When he shows up, you're just like, oh, yeah, baby, here we go. Because, yeah. y- you know, Hackman and Duvall are from the same school yeah. of acting. Yeah. They're no-nonsense, Oh no, do-the-work journeyman dudes. Duvall is one of the great – he is very similar to me to – Gene Hackman, yeah, in terms of talent and the way that they can both be funny and and oh, yeah. charming, yeah. but also intense. He does intense and scary, like yeah. Oh man, if you have you seen the Great Santini? No. Oh my no. god. As a dude that grew up with a questionable stepfather, <laughs> <laughs> that thing hit home because talk about a bully. It yeah. is such an amazing performance, so unlikable, but definitely, definitely see it. You know, because it just cements him again as just these guys that are all they don't give a crap about the fame, the yeah, money, that yeah. stuff. It's just the work. Oh, the scene, just the short scene with the two of them where yeah. he, he did Hackman sits down and he's counting it, counting the money. And then he, Duvall's just getting more and more upset about the, the conversation that he's hearing. And finally, it's just like, can you please count your money outside? Yeah. And just him sitting there with the back to him, petting the dog. It was just in his oh. eyes are just kind of it's oh. all again, all in the eyes, uh, the performance. Yeah, and. Yeah. And at first, and this is what's, again, so brilliant about this movie, when you watch this scene, you see him as, because we've been geared toward, oh, it's the director, yeah, so yeah. he's a powerful, you know, he's going to kill them because it's his wife, and, right, you know, right. we're, we, we know exactly what's going to go down now. Yeah. I mean, it's writing's on the wall, but he's not. He's a weak, Oh, yeah, jealous, he's just insecure. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, super spoilers alerts. He's the one that gets killed, yeah, you know, yeah. and it's it's such a brilliant turnaround, and it's not like a shockeroo double do. Yeah, it, yeah, it is all organic, and it all makes so much sense within the story and the way that it unfolds. Yeah, we get to see it's it's like a mystery. It's got so many different elements to it that make it so engrossing. I was noticing too by the time the movie ended because we usually joke around a lot and make comments right. and stuff, but it got to the point where it was whisper quiet in this room. Nobody was saying a damn thing. And we yeah. were both so engrossed in the movie that neither of us said anything for like... Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, after like the first 10 or 15 oh, minutes, yeah, yeah. we were just like zoned it in. Just, yeah, that's and the draw of this movie. So engrossing. And honestly, I haven't been that engrossed in a movie yeah. that we've... You know, as, as it, wonderful as all these movies are. Right, right. This just pulls you in in a way that is so unique and you, rare. You want to know more about Harry Cole. Every second he's on screen, it's like, why? Why is he doing this? Why? I want to know more. I want to know, like, how this is going to unfold. I want to know. And it's, and you want to know what the conversation's about. Yeah. And you want to, in the way that he chips away at the imperfections in right. the, in the right. recording is just, it, it's just so brilliant. And also, he's, you know, he just delivers the tapes, but for some reason he's like, yeah, I'm not going to give him until it's like, he that. That's a weird feeling. <laughs> that, that tug of war that he and Harrison Ford have <laughs> is just so fun. But uh, 
But then he goes back because he knows there's something, right? Yeah, yeah. He feels it. So, yeah, yeah. So when he goes back and he starts de- delving deeper and... and yeah, and, wait. Hey, Harry, weren't you done with that? Are Aren't you done, you done with this? Why, did you, why are you still working on why that? You, why didn't you shut up and let me do my work? And it's like he, he doesn't want to admit that he's trying to redeem himself from New York. Right. So it's right. just easier for him to be like, shut up and let me do this. Right. And basically, he's just a shut up and let me do this kind of person who doesn't like distractions. Yeah. And yeah. is trying as hard as he can to push people away yeah. because of his PTSD and right. his, right. You know, his shame from, from the New York job. It's just, again, layers upon layers upon yeah. layers. Yeah. So Coppola says he was shocked to learn that the film used the same surveillance and wiretapping equipment that members of the Nixon administration used to spy on political opponents prior to the Watergate scandal. Oh, yes. They were very popular at the time. <laughs> we all went to Radio Shack. Coppola has said this reason is why the film gained part of the recognition it has received, but it was entirely coincidental. Uh, In addition to the script being completed in the mid-60s, the spying equipment used in the film was discovered through research and the use of technical advisors and not, as many believed, by revelatory newspaper stories about the Watergate break-in. Yeah, they don't give a crap about that stuff. No. Uh, Coppola also noted the filming of the conversation had been completed several months before the most revelatory Watergate stories broke in the press. Yeah, but I mean, why not? Jump on that and, and use it, it to... Yeah, it was used. Sure. Get your film going. Uh, because the film was released to theaters just a few months before Richard Nixon resigned as president, Coppola felt that audiences interpreted the film to be a reaction to both the Watergate scandal and its fallout. No, people are dumb. Uh, they are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the conversation features a piano score composed and performed by David Shire. Shire was married to Talia, Coppola's sister. Adrian! Uh, the score was created before the film was shot, on some, which is very... Uncommon. Oh, yeah, because you usually time the score right. to the, you know, to the it, scenes. Exactly. Yeah. You see the typical orchestra composing along with the actual film projected, you know, in front right. of them. Right. On some cues, Shire used music concrete techniques, taking the taped sounds of the piano and distorting them in different ways to create alternative tonalities to round out the score. Yeah, there's a lot of distortion uh, yeah, in which this movie. Yeah, fits in so well. In because the there's a lot of distortion in, the, in yeah. this movie, yeah. not just the audio distortion, right, right. but the whole, like, <laughs> let's get deep. Coppola would have the actors listen to the score before shooting a scene to get them into the proper mood, uh, which is a brilliant directing technique. Oh, yeah. Uh, the original cut was four and a half hours long. Good Lord. <laughs> Part of me wants to see it. Oh, man. But, man, that's long. When we, when T and I first finished Carbuncle, yeah. our first cut was two hours and I think 48 minutes. Oof. And we were like, this is it. It's oh, brilliant. God. This is done. We are done. This is awesome. <laughs> High fives all around. We showed it to some friends, and they're like, Good Lord. This is really long. This is long. And we ended up cutting it down to 88 minutes. Oh, wow. That's a lot. 160 hours of footage cut down to 88 minutes. Wow. Three cameras. Uh, Most significant was a subplot of Harry dealing with his neighbors who complain about the building's plumbing problems, unaware that Harry owns the building. Wait, so he, he owns his apartment building? References to Harry owning the building were cut from the final film. So theoretically in the final film... No. No, of course he doesn't, because he wouldn't be calling the manager right. if he owned the building. But it's possible if he owned the building that there would be a manager he would hire. Sure, but he, why wouldn't he just like, if you, if you get in my apartment again, you're fired. And he, would, he could also like not have him give it. it. Probably because he doesn't want the apartment manager to know that he owns the building. 
Well, I'm just saying. I'm I glad mean, they excised that stuff because it would have made it needlessly I, confusing. I, well, that's why it was four and a half hours long. <laughs> uh, <laughs> other scenes feature Harry consulting his lawyer, played by Abe Vigoda, about the apartment situation. I'm Abe Vigoda, your and, lawyer. And Harry convincing his teenage niece, played by Mackenzie Phillips, not to run away from home. Oh, nice. Yeah, but again, this is all I, I get it, but this is this is like superfluous BS that you well, don't need to know. And it's getting movie. to know him too well. Well, it also softens him a bit. Well, that, exactly. Like I don't want to get to know him that well. Exactly. Like I need to see him the way he sees himself, the way he portrays himself right. to the world. Right. right. And then right. that way, when we get to see the little glimpses inside of him, right. you know, we get to see all of the contradictions. Exactly. Uh, Coppola had a production company set up with William Friedkin and Peter Bogdanovich. Friedkin hated the conversation, calling it a ripoff of the blow-up from, from 1966. Well, he's not entirely wrong about that, but... No, uh, but there was not a reason to hate the movie. No. The movie was good. It was great. <laughs> he was just jelly. He was probably Pro- jealous. Probably. I mean, I look, I'm sure he and Coppola are extremely competitive. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Bogdanovich probably just didn't give a crap. He was just... Doing his best to keep Sybil Shepherd as his girlfriend or whatever. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he was trying as hard as he could to make any movies hey, as good as both of them. You guys should put Sybil Shepherd in your movies. <laughs> what do you think about Sybil? Uh, the production company dissolved after the failure of Daisy Miller in 1974, directed by Bogdanovich, starring Sybil Shepherd. Sybil Shepherd. I love Sybil Shepherd too, by the sure. way. She, she was awesome. great in Last Picture Show. Yeah. Amazing in one of my absolute favorite TV shows ever, Moonlighting with Bruce Willis. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And just, I think she's got a lot better as she got older. She was very yeah. underrated. Yeah. The original cinematographer of the conversation was Haskell Wexler. Oh, man, a genius. Severe creative and, well, <laughs> just wait. <laughs> Severe creative and personal differences with Coppola led to Wexler's firing shortly after production began, and Coppola replaced him with Bill Butler. Sure. Yes. Uh, yes. Haskell Wexler was very confident in what he did, and he a lot of times clashed with directors, yes. um, but it doesn't discount the fact that he's one of the greatest sure. American cinematographers ever. Wexler visualized the movie in a more romantic style of the Thomas Crown Affair, which Wexler was cinematographer, while Coppola saw it more in the cinema verite style of Medium Cool, which Wexler directed. Uh, so, you know, it was just creative differences. Sure, and, you know, ha- Haskell was looking more in terms of, oh, we're making a studio movie. Right, and let's shoot right. it studio way. Yeah, you know yeah. he wasn't looking at Which like it would not have worked. No, of course not. No. But that's I think that's the the biggest issue. Is yeah, he was like, wait, you want it to look like this? Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe he was like, it's just going to make me look like I don't know what I'm doing. I don't. I, well, Bill Butler did a good job. So Amazing whatever. job. But uh, I, I think Wexler's more of a a bigger. Sure. You know. Sure. He, yeah. You know how it is. It's like there's indie guys and there's studio guys. Yeah. Uh, Wexler's footage on the conversation was completely reshot, except for the technically complex surveillance scene in Union Square. Which was great. Fantastic, sure. This movie was the first of two Oscar-nominated films where Wexler would be fired and replaced by Butler, the second being One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975, where Wexler had similar problems with Milos Forman. I wonder if if they had, like, a rivalry or something. Probably. Picking up my uh, my scraps again, but look. Uh, maybe if you didn't get fired in Wexler, uh, I wouldn't have to. Oh, come here. Give me a knuckle sandwich. Uh, the film grossed $4.42 million in the U.S. from a $1.6 million budget. Not bad. Uh, Roger Ebert gave the conversation four out of four stars and described Hackman's portrayal of, of Call as 
One of the most affecting and tragic characters in the movies. The film was nominated for three Academy Awards. He was absolutely right about that, too, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the film was nominated for three Academy Awards. Best Picture, Losing to the Godfather Part Two. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure uh, he was. That's like. I mean, what do you do? Yeah. He knew he was going to get beat by himself. Well, sure, whatever. Best Original Screenplay, Losing to Chinatown. And Honorable I, and Loss. Again, yeah. Uh, and best sound, losing to earthquake. Okay, BS. B. S. Totally agree. This totally is again agree. like, like the, uh, what was it that was it sound design or something? What what did Fiddler on the Roof beat? Uh, in for the French Connection. Yeah, yeah it wasn't it cinematography. I think it was cinematography. Yeah. Which is like, oh my god, the, the all the, yeah, the cinematographer yeah, almost yeah. died and created a, a yeah. completely new way of shooting film. But no, I guess filming guys playing was, fiddles. In the one of the articles <laughs> I read about William Friedkin dying, it literally quoted it as saying, "I am shocked that no one died on the French Connection." Yes, <laughs> including especially himself. me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You he know? was like, "I wouldn't do that now. I wouldn't do that." Nobody now. would. Yeah. We talked about this too. It's like when you're young. You throw your whole body into everything. Yeah. Everything that I was involved in, I'd get hurt because I thought that I had to right. sacrifice myself. But yeah. it's all BS. It's, you're just being an idiot. You're just being, you know, you're. it's almost like overcompensating because, at least for me, it was almost like overcompensating because you feel like maybe what you're doing isn't like as important as being a doctor or a lawyer right. or whatever. Right. So, <laughs> so, so you got to kind of like... I'm put- my body on the line. Right. <laughs> you got to prove yourself that it's worthy. Uh. Yeah. Despite receiving nominations for Best Actor at the Golden Globes, the BAFTAs, and the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, and winning Best Actor at the National Board of Review and the St. Jordi Awards, Gene Hackman failed to receive an Academy Award nomination. Not even a nomination. Critics, audiences, major film groups, and publications considered this as one of the most major snubs of all time. One. Hundred yeah. percent. It is his greatest performance ever. It is one of the greatest performances ever. Oh sure, it is. It is to me the greatest performance of paranoia, PTSD, oh, and yeah. it is so layered and and so real. And for the time, and I don't even know if they realized that they were dealing with PTSD then. No, you know? no, no. But it is such a, a raw and real performance. Yeah. Coppola was not nominated for Best Director due to Academy category rules of not being nominated twice in that same category, mm-hmm. uh, only for the director. He was nominated for The Godfather Part Two for directing. Uh, Coppola did win the Palme d'Or at the 1974 Cannes Film Festival for the conversation, uh, so that's something. Sure. Coppola was the third director to have two nominations for Best Picture in the same year. Uh, Victor Fleming was the first in 1939 with Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, And Hitchcock repeated the fact that the, the feat the next year with Foreign Correspondent and Rebecca. I knew it was going to be Hitchcock. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you're in pretty pretty good standing there. Yeah. To have two movies nominated for Best Picture, that's crazy. Yes. Uh, Out of all those pictures, Gone with the Wind does not hold up. N- uh, no. <laughs> and frankly, Adam, I don't give a damn. Uh, since Coppola, two other directors have done the same. Herbert Ross in 1977 with The Goodbye Girl and The Turning Point. Okay. Uh, and Steven Soderbergh in 2000 with Aaron Brockovich in Traffic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the only one is Herbert Ross. I don't know who Herbert Ross is. I will need to watch The Goodbye Girl and The Turning Point. The Goodbye Girl is a Neil Simon play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Turning Point, they're both good movies, and I remember seeing both okay. of them. Okay. Uh, Coppola, however, is the only one to have produced the pictures that were nominated. So he is literally the only director-producer to have two movies nominated for Best Picture in one year. Wow. 
1995, the conversation was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Sure. Uh, according to film critic Kim Newman, the 1998 film Enemy of the State, which also stars Gene Hackman as co-protagonist, could be construed as a... Continuation of the conversation. Hackman's character, Edward Lyle, in Enemy of the State closely resembles Call... Uh, because they're played because by they the look same alike. Actor. Yeah. <laughs> they wear the same coat. He dons the same translucent raincoat, and his workshop is nearly identical to Calls. Yeah, except his personality is 100% I not know, I know. Calls. Also, the photograph used for Lyle in his NSA file is actually a photograph of Harry Call from the movie. If you, if you want to see what the conversation would look like in like early 2000s, uh, Tony <laughs> Scott. Directed by Tony Scott. You yeah. know, with a lot of sunset. Golden hour shots and a yeah. lot of guys talking over each other. And, and a lot of and suddenly overhead shots. Yeah, and yeah. Seth Green. Oh, and uh, like Jack Seth Black. Green. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Enemy of the State also includes a scene which is very similar to the conversation's opening surveillance scene in San Francisco's Union Square. Yeah, except um, all stylized. I, I, I liked Enemy of the State. I do, too. It was fine. I'm not, I'm I mean, not it was definitely a it. movie of its time. Yes. <laughs> uh, and Hackman was fantastic in it. Sure, he was great. And... and uh, Slappy Slapperson was okay too. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but uh, <laughs> wow, I'm sorry. It's Slappy Mick Slapperson. Slappy Mick Slapperson. Sorry, yeah. I don't mean to disparage. But uh, yeah, I mean, yes, I I would I want to kind of I think I might watch that movie again before the end of the month. Yeah, just out yeah, of, I actually think I might too. I, I it's been a while. I really yeah. I really enjoyed it. Uh, a television pilot starring Kyle MacLachlan as Harry Call was produced for NBC, but it was not picked up for a full series. Good because it's not. No, this is... What, are they going to make it Monk? There you doesn't know? need to be a conversation part two. No, it's all said there. It's all done. It it's a, a very nicely contained film. standalone story. Yes. And it is... And you, I, every single time I watch this movie, like you said, I'm drawn in. Oh, yeah. Every time. Every time. It is so engaging. It is so well cut, shot, edited, and acted yeah. that such a seemingly kind of simple story... You yeah. know, with a lot of schlubby middle-aged guys and <laughs> middle-aged women. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. a bunch of desperate people. God, nobody's sick. really good looking. <laughs> no, no, they're all people. Traditionally Hollywood, you sure, know, everybody's sure. real, and it's just like, it's so bizarre that this movie is so great, and it's just it's because of Coppola, and it's because of Hackman, and it's oh. because of all the actors and the writing and the cinematography. It's one of these magical movies like The French Connection, where everything comes together. Yeah. To make a perfect movie. Yeah, Coppola has gone on record saying that he's pretty sure this is the only movie that he wrote an original screenplay for. Oh, wow. Like, everything else has been adapted sure. from other things and whatnot. But he loves this movie. Uh, it was his favorite movie to work on, much like Hackman. Like, it, it's it's just such a rare gem. Well, it would be like making, especially after coming off of The Godfather, which is this giant right. production, and The Godfather right. 2, which is even bigger. Yeah. yeah. You know, you've got this small little film with a pretty small cast, all kind of taking place in little rooms. Yeah. And, you know, you got the big thing at the beginning, and you got a couple things, but it's a very intimate film. And, it, and I love that kind of filmmaking, like the shots, man. Yeah, this the composition of the frame is like is a painting, you know, yeah, and that's yeah. what I love. Letting there's so many shots in his apartment, especially when 
He's trying to find the bugging device. Yes. Where yes. it's just, it stays, man. And well, it, yeah, And yeah. all the action and goes in through the frame. That's the beauty of it. The very beginning when you're in his apartment, like it stays and then he leaves the frame and then and then it slowly pans over like a security camera. Yeah. And then it's sitting, sitting on the couch. And then it you know? slowly pans back. At yeah. the end, too. It's again yeah. with the security it's just, camera. It's like you're always being watched. And with these little... Not little, but with these self-contained yeah. stories, you can be a lot more deep, and you can really get into the nitty-gritty and the undertones with it yeah. because you you can sit around and talk about what the scene is, and let's go through yeah. and what are yeah. okay, what's on the surface, and what's going on underneath, right? You know, right. what is the subtext? What's your motivation versus your motivation? And everybody, everybody has a motivation. Everybody, yeah. even. The smallest extra or the like the speaking part, even the mime, yeah, you yeah, know, has yeah. something going on. And it's, it's oh, <laughs> sorry, that was the, the best when they were like, How are you going to do this? I was like, Well, you get four mimes right. and they all have recorders <laughs> yeah. and they just follow them around because who cares about mimes? There's a lot of mimes in this park, huh? <laughs> oh man, well, that's all I got for the script. So, uh, I, I love this movie. I realized uh, while we were watching it that this is definitely my top 10, my favorite movies. 100%. Time. If I, you have not seen The Conversation and you are a film fan, yeah. or a Hackman fan, or a Coppola fan, or a Kazale fan, or a fan fan. Or if you like seeing people do their best work yeah. in every aspect, this movie you need to see. This is a great movie. And again, if you want to do a double feature, yeah. you do this and you do the... Slappy McSlapperson. You did the enemy <laughs> of the, the state. state. Definitely watch the conversation for No, you sh- yes. Watch the conversation then enemy of the state. It's I almost not, say watch be... enemy of the state and conversation no, because you're going to be no, disappointed no, no, no. in It's not I mean I'm just saying yeah. you're going to watch one of the greatest films ever right. and then a disposable You could think Tony of it Scott as being a yeah, sure, sure. Action flick. It is definitely a lot more action And it's, of, it's, it's definitely of its time. But, you know, that's the, that's the best part. You watch the conversation, you have a couple drinks, and then by the time you get to Enemy of State, have a lot more drinks. And, sure. then, and then it's fun. So the conversation is like a marriage <laughs> where you're deeply involved in, in, in your marriage, and, you, in, and this is, it's just, like, engrossing, and, yeah. and it takes up your life. And then you get divorced. <laughs> and then you're fling. And then you're is the enemy, the enemy of the state. <laughs> and it's just somebody you met at a bar. They're pretty cute. Yeah. You had a good time. But, but you're not going to see him again. You can forget about him tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. fine. It's but, fine. But, but again, amazing performances by Gene Hackman all around. And, yeah. And yeah. since this is Gene Hack month. Yeah. Uh, you can't go wrong with him. No. No. But yeah. this is his greatest performance. Totally. In arguably, we say... Uh, one of Cop- Coppola's greatest films. I yes, I agree. Or favorite film, I think. Yeah, I well, I mean, personally, I would say best film, but that's me. I, well, I, I have my reasons for the others not being higher than this, but uh, this this movie grabbed me. The conversation grabbed me like The Godfather did not. Oh, really? I I liked The Godfather. It was fine, but this movie grabbed me. Oh, okay. Yeah. I get it. I mean, it's also a much more focused, you know, yeah. smaller film. But yeah. yeah. Again, you know, it's, 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 you know, what chocolate do you like the best? Exactly, Which ice cream is exactly. sweetest? You know, it's there. You, you can't still have wrong. an ice cream. Exactly. You're still going to get a great movie, uh, you know, out of any of these films. But uh, seriously, it's, it's a little hard to find right now. Yeah, unfortunately. But you could pick up a Blu-ray. You, yeah. For a few bucks on Amazon. Uh, possibly. 
Is it out of print? They're apparently really hard to find. Really? <laughs> the last time, because I looked, because I was like, oh, I'm just going to buy this. Yeah, yeah. And the Blu-ray is like 50 bucks. Good Lord. Uh, it's out of print. You can get a Region 2, so if you're in Region 2 listening to us, you can get it for like $20. See, I would go um, for just a straight old regular you, DVD. You could probably, this. I'm pretty sure you can find a DVD for Because, you know, I mean, I've, I've said this, I, I, I like the imperfections, you yeah. know, I think VHS is kind of the, the way to go with these films. Agreed. Um, Agreed. If you can. But uh, but any way that you can see it, yeah. do yourself a favor and see it because I hit up your library. I guarantee you they have a copy on DVD. Yes, because it is a national preserved film. It is. Yes, it is, and a national treasure is Gene Hackman. <laughs> it is Gene Hackman for our Hack Month. Yeah, baby. Wow. So we'll be back. Yeah, next week. I'm excited. I haven't seen this in a long time. Yeah, one of the funniest movies ever made. <laughs> Mississippi Burning, oh, baby. Ah, uh, Hackman and Willem Dafoe. Oh, going after racist. It's going to be good. It is. And, and again, and we'll talk about it then, but again, a, such a layered performance by him. Yeah. Because it's not like these guys were anti-racist crusaders. No. You know, they, had, no. they still had. And he was played very real. We'll talk about it. I'm just yeah. so excited. Um, but we'll see you next time. Get your conversation on and uh, make sure nobody's listening. Here we go. 7.8 out of 10. Fuck you, IMDb. Gen X show, 130. Attach the conversation, 7-13. Subtitled, fuck you, IMDb. Fuck you, IMDb. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Taxi, already in progress.